Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ. It's Friday. You are Jay talking with live midnight to five. It's August. Is it August yet? August 15th is coming up. And isn't that, uh, that's the anniversary of Woodstock, right? I think so. Now, we have uh, a guest in here who has a very interesting story. One interesting book, at least done and two and maybe another one on the way you'll understand in a moment uh we had uh john kane on some time ago and he mentioned a guy who had put together the sound system for woodstock and uh, and mentioned that we should at some point do a special a whole full thing on that and we're kind of going to get into that but in the process of making that book he got involved in making this spectacular coffee table woodstock book pilgrims of woodstock and it's just come out today. John Kane, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Bradley. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, I enjoy your show a lot. So thanks. And thank for, you. So first we'll... I like to say I don't even own a coffee table, so... <laughs> you can use the book as a coffee table. <laughs> I guess you could. It's could. so big. That's right. So there's an interesting story of how this particular book came to be, and it's probably going to take some time, and we have plenty of that, so go ahead. Well, uh, as you mentioned, um, I'm a local guy. I grew up in Somerville and um, uh, proud of that and I, I currently live in New Hampshire and um, I'll try to summarize as best as possible but uh, I finished my doctoral dissertation in 2014 my dissertation was uh, on uh, a guy by the name of Bill Hanley of Medford Massachusetts uh, Bill is known as the father of festival sound what was the doctorate in leadership studies and disruptive technologies okay yeah I mean really I had no interest in studying leadership uh, from a from a successful perspective, more of an underdog pers perspective. Those who failed but went on to do amazing things, it's more interesting to me. And Hanley kind of fit that uh, criteria. And what I, was his first name? Bill Hanley. Bill Hanley. Yeah, Bill Hanley from Medford, okay. uh, Massachusetts. Yep. And his sound shop was at 430 Salem Street. There's a Dunkin' Donuts there now, and uh, rightfully so. As he had a sound be. shop? He had a sound shop okay. called who, Hanley Sound. What, was, who, what, what did he do? Well, I'll explain. Bill didn't invent uh, amplifiers, speakers, microphones, but what Bill did that was significant was he, he took um, basic public address systems uh, at li for live uh, music settings and introduced systems of sound that created a tipping point and shift for the quality 
clarity and intelligibility of live music. Otherwise known as sound reinforcement. Sound reinforcement, which you know seems kind of ridiculous, right? It's still a very young industry when you really think about it. And um, Bill uh, introduced, well, I should say the construct in a simple way is to say that he took cinema, sound, uh, large speaker systems, voice of the theater speakers. He took hi-fi equipment, uh, Macintosh amplifiers, other amplifiers uh, used for home hi-fi use, and then microphones from recording and radio. Uh, And when he does that and puts them together in multiples, he then creates a system of sound, a sound system. And he begins this at Newport in uh, in the late 1950s, uh, Newport uh, Jazz, beginning in jazz. And as the music business, it wasn't really an industry quite yet then, uh, it develops and grows and also a demand for better sound grows and there's Hanley right 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 there working with them. I mean he was at some of the most seminal uh, musical events in American popular uh, culture history when Dylan goes electric Hanley's at the console when uh, you know the jazz and folk festivals that happen at Newport that legacy from 1957 all the way through 1967 uh, moving on to the biggest <clears throat> and biggest most significant uh, pop festivals to occur on uh, American soil from Atlanta Atlanta pop uh, to uh, Woodstock and uh, moving forward. And uh, especially there's one, the Transcontinental Pop Festival, Festival Express is another real notable one. I mean, there's a lot of other smaller festivals that he did, but it was that golden age of rock and pop festivals where Hanley was uh, in the mix. So anytime anyone goes to a big concert with big sound, they owe it to him. They owe it to him, and there were others, but it wasn't in in the chapter of that book I call The Competition, and I I couldn't really find a better uh, way to <clears throat> title that chapter, excuse me, uh, because it really wasn't competition. There were very few people doing it on a national level. level. Uh, there were a couple in California. There was one in Nebraska, and this is the first-generation sound engineer, the first-generation sound company as I uh, define it in the book. These are first-generation sound, live sound engineers for the concert industry. What did he use for equipment? I mean, you we got into it a little bit, yeah. but can you get into it more? Yeah, in the early days, Bill was using what was available to him. There wasn't much available. So there um, were no Marshall amps at the time? Well, well, pe- bands would plug into Marshall amps okay. for amplification. But they were not, there was n- the Marshall people didn't make huge things. Marshall, Jim for Marshall stage. and Marshall, that was all, oh, not Jim Marshall, but that those Marshall amps were, were was a UK product. And th- there was a, another guy in the UK uh, Charlie Watkins that built the WEM systems, which would come would tour with the Who. Uh, Hanley remembers them coming through and seeing those systems, but he often said that they were very loud and not didn't really give a lot of throw. Um, but what Bill was using early on, let's say for the Beatles tour in 1966, which he did 14 dates for, I should mention, um, he it, the the decibels, the screaming girls or screaming fans that were uh, generating uh, high SP, uh, SPL levels. He could not overcome that with the equipment he had. He was using uh, amplifiers from battleships, uh, RCA amplifiers, uh, uh, sure microphones that weren't the SM58s that were so commonly used now for rock and roll. That was way before. And, um, you know, equipment, primitive uh, equipment, uh, primitive technologies that Bill was discovering that were suitable for the time. And then as time went on, he started to create his own speaker cabinets. I mean, cinema sound is, is an amazing uh, thing. When you look at the quality of sound 
in early cinema, uh, and then when television comes in, a lot of that, a lot of those theaters were closing down. Bill was acquiring that equipment, so voice of the theater speakers were a huge uh, uh, proponent for Hanley to get that throw he needed uh, for. So large you did concerts. the dissertation on this, and mm-hmm. you wanted to do a book, and you have well, put together a book. Well, my dissertation was very was heavy, heavily researched, and wasn't really like readable. It was. It was a good reference book, you know, it was, but it wasn't a story. It wasn't really that to that level. And I had a former professor of mine come back in 2015 and say, hey, I want to work with you and help you uh, and, and get this thing out there into a readable manuscript. So he said, rewrite it and then come back with me and we'll, uh, we'll read it line by line, paragraph by paragraph together. And this is my former professor, Alan DiBiase, who's just been a, a mentor of mine. I mean, it takes a village. He helped me out a great deal. I'm not a, a, an English major. I'm a historian. I'm a researcher. So, but my primary goal was to make sure that all those interviews and all that research was um, immersed into into a textual form where people could read it as a story, as a, and as a, a clear narrative. So, it was a it was an adventure. I mean, Hanley's life is a series of adventures to me, a rock good rock and roll adventures. But it also told a very important thing about how sound. Uh, was developed for a live concerts and live outdoor sound. Somehow in the process of that book, this Woodstock book was germinated. Can you tell that? Story? Yeah, yeah. So um, when uh, during my research for Hanley, uh, specifically on Woodstock, I mean, Hanley's culminating performance was his, uh, his um, development of a, one of the largest sound systems to ever occur on uh, a festival field was at Woodstock. You know, big speakers, uh, uh, amplification and, and, and you know, 10,000 watts of power, which was a lot for the time. It doesn't seem like a lot now. But um, I uh, would constantly be researching, trying to find the sound engineer in the, in the mix of the, of the crowd. You know, there were lots of people at these mass gatherings. And uh, I came upon a collection of photographs uh, that I thought were worthy to further evaluate in my search for Hanley. So you thought that maybe this collection of photographs would contain photographs of Henley that you could use in your Henley book that I could use in my Henley book. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, when, you know, folks know me in the field now, uh, I I'm, I'm friends with the museum up at Bethel woods. I have friends that are in the tech field of this technology. So, uh, someone said, Hey, John Kane, did you see this collection? You know, and I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is, this is probably something worth checking out. So I, I purchased the collection and, it was um, in like an estate sale. Yeah, it was bought uh, from the estate of a, um, a now-deceased photojournalist named Richard Bellack uh, from Brooklyn, New York. His estate sat for two years. Uh, he committed suicide, very sadly. And um, that was bought uh, and bidded on by a, a Long Island uh, estate uh, buyout company. Uh, you know, they would buy out estates. And let me tell you, Bellack had other collections, and he was an African art dealer. It was much more to this than that, but the Woodstock collection really stood out to me because I'm a Woodstock, somewhat of a Woodstock scholar and historian. And um, so, you, did you buy it directly from them, or did you him, or did you that estate, or did you have to buy it from the secondary? I had to buy it from the secondary okay. purchaser with negatives and rights okay, rights cool. of use and all that. Yeah, and I thought it was a good investment. I mean, I took a chance, and um, then uh, after finding out that Hanley was uh, not in it, but his his platform, you know, Hanley sat out 75 feet stage left into the field 
if it if it was raining, he would pull visqueen, the polyurethane sheeting over. Like you never everybody really did. got a good shot of him. Well, I, I didn't get a good shot of him, but I got a good shot of the mixing platform. I'm like, well, okay. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I have this collection. What am I going to do with it? So as this is happening, I'm sending out uh, my manuscript uh, and proposals uh, to uh, various uh, uh, publish- publishers mostly academic publishers because that's what my background is in. And, um, you know, a series of rejection letters are pouring into my, into my, uh, into my email. And, um, you know, one of them came back and said, Hey, you know, we really like what you wrote about Hanley, but would you consider writing a book about Woodstock, um, for the 50th anniversary? And I of course said yes, but I, I didn't really know what it would be about. Uh, but because of my connections in the field, uh, I knew I had access to interviews of attendees and production people. And then I thought, well, what about a book? You know, there are tons of books on Woodstock out there. Um, take your pick, you know. And uh, I, I really thought about, well, is this something I want to do? Create a book about Woodstock when there are I have all the when there's all these other books on Woodstock. But I thought, well, what about a book that really just focused on the audience? I could use the Bella Collection because the Bella Collection is unique in that way that it just focuses on the youth culture that emerged on that uh, on Yasger's field uh, that, for those three or four days. So you actually interviewed a bunch of attendees? 40, and then I chose 30 of the best attendees. And that's what stories. makes the book different? Well, I think- It focuses on their stories. It's not so, just a picture book. It's not just a picture book. Uh, it focuses on their stories, and we don't we learn about their them as a fourteen year old or a sixteen year old or a twenty one year old on the field, not about how they went on to become a stockbroker or a butcher or whomever you know in their in their career. We just learn their first names, how old they were at Woodstock, and where they left from, and then you know how they left uh, those you know after those four days were done. There are beautiful photos, and there are stories. Of individuals. And what we'll do is start with some of the people that you write about. Then we'll take a look at some of the pictures, the photos that also have stories. So you, I guess you spoke to the pe- people <clears throat> who appeared on the cover of the Woodstock, famous Woodstock album. Yeah, Nick, who were they? And tell me their story. Yeah, Nick and Bobby Erkeline. Uh, what a sweet couple. Uh, they're friends of mine now, and uh, I feel really privileged to know them. And... Uh, They've been very generous with their story. Their story, some of their stories, also in the Hanley book as well. Um, yeah, you know, there were, you know, people forget, you know, where did people come from for for, for Woodstock? You know, they, people left from all over the country to come uh, to Yasker's farm, hearing it on the radio, uh, advertisements on the radio, whether they bought tickets beforehand uh, via an alternative newspaper or uh, the New York Times, or they. You know, went to their favorite record store and bought tickets there. But the Urkelines came from uh, a, lo- a town local to the Bethel uh, area, and they were so they were they were local. They they were young local people, and they waited till Saturday because they were hearing that you shouldn't go 
into Woodstock. Stay away. There, at some point, there was a shift that said, do not come here. Right. It's crowded. You're never going to get in. And they knew the back roads, and they took the back roads uh, uh, into uh, Bethel. They, just like everybody else, parked, left their car somewhere, and then uh, walked in. And, you know, I asked them, they're f- most famous on the cover of Woodstock because they're wrapped, uh, they're embracing each other and wrapped in a blanket, a quilt. Um, you know, what an iconic uh, album cover. You know, it's, there's nothing really complicated about it, but it's very pure. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's incredible. Anyway, uh, they walk in and Nick, uh, or Bobby, uh, Bobby is, um, uh, uh, you know, Nick and Bobby, Bobby is the, the wife in, in this story, sometimes Bobby, you know. Uh, she says that people are just dumping stuff all, along the way uh, into uh, Yasgers. You know, it's Saturday, trash is everywhere, it's accumulating, and she finds this blanket just lying there. She thought, well, maybe this would be nice to have and put down and, and sit down. And uh, they didn't get too far, clo- they didn't get too close to the stage, but they got near, near enough uh, where they could hear the music and see uh see um you know lights and, and things like that so they were but really far away they were very far away yeah mm-hmm. as, as the weekend wore on you could not get down to the stage it was super dense yeah it was really crowded yeah definitely i want to i'm sure you don't know well maybe you do mm-hmm. what time you had to get there to get down close to the stage well that's you know if we can relate it back to pilgrims of woodstock uh the book is designed in a chronological manner so uh there are attendees who i interviewed that arrived two weeks early and at that point, you learn how easy it was to drive your car in, find parking, and set up your camping equipment. Two weeks early. Two weeks early. That's correct. Yep. How about at one week? Were you good in one at one week? Yeah, you were good at one week. But as you got closer to that opening day, boy, you would have to leave your car miles away and walk in. I feel like you could still, if somebody was really, really wanted to get down front, you could have made your way through the through the meat crush that was you probably could i mean you know um if you wanted to do that it's just one of those things if you really want to do that and say hey can i sit you know chances are you could have done that given the 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 quality of the experience another story in the book story of turkey and angel oh yeah that's such a beautiful story man uh and wayne rogers uh who's in the film uh, if you watch the Woodstock movie, Michael Wadley's uh, award-winning documentary, uh, Woodstock, uh, there's a guy that comes out of the Port of San with a, a very ornate hash pipe. And uh, he's, intervie- he's being interviewed by Martin Scorsese. And uh, it's just kind of general rhetoric. You know, he's talk- they're kind of talking back and forth. But I, I asked Turkey, what's the story of that? How- Why were you in the Port of San? He goes, do you... you- He's really a funny guy. He said they were in the port of, there were five people in the port of sand and they were in there uh, sheltering themselves from extreme wind because they were trying to light the hash pipe. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, stories like that are just uh, illustrating, uh, you know, the, the atmosphere. And you, you chose a journalist. There was a journalist there, one of the local journalists. Yes, there was a local journalist there. Uh, from what town? Middleton. Middletown. Middletown. Middleton. Yeah, Middletown. And, you know, there's some conservative... Uh, perspectives in this book it's not it's it's not just one-sided uh he went he didn't think it was that big of a deal and uh that evening he he went on a saturday reported back to the press and um the news station and then went back home to his parents house for for the air conditioning you know it wasn't he wasn't there as a uh a participant in the counterculture he was there as uh, as someone who was analyzing the situation and you found you managed to find a vietnam vet yeah, incredible uh, story. That was, again, going back to how this book is different. 
there is a very meaningful and, and uh, way, well, let me put it this way. I would not have wanted to make a book that just had the same story. Uh, it was important that I chose attendees that had uh, different voices, varied voices. And um, the Vietnam vet was important. Uh, how many, my question in my head was, how many Vietnam vets were at Woodstock? Because this was at the height of the Vietnam War. And um, this particular gentleman, um, in, in interviewing him, broke down in tears. And I, like I told you, I... I, I said, let's just stop this interview. It, it, it's okay. You know, we don't have to do this. And he said, no, John, this, this story must be told. And, um, you know, Woodstock, I asked that question, was Woodstock a political demonstration? Was it a politically driven event? <clears throat> and most say no. Correct. Yeah. And um, aside from uh, the, uh, the um, uh, fixing the die rag, the fish cheer, uh, the famous fish cheer, uh, which uh, profanity is belted out into the into the rolling hills of Sullivan County, um, that you know, and there are others. Abby Hoffman, of course, shows his face, but um, it wasn't a design that way. But it was a response to the the divisive times. Was it? I mean, I think so. I think people were trying, were denouncing societal norms. They were you sure it wasn't for, just an awesome concert. I mean, it was that too. But I also you sure think, it wasn't <laughs> primarily an awesome concert. Well, I wasn't there, but I suspect that it was an awesome concert. But okay. I also, but I also think that there was something that brought four hundred thousand into one area, and, and that question still remains: what, Why did so many people, so many people, come to Yasker's farm? It's it's an anomaly. I mean, I, I think there are several answers to that question, but it is a good question to ask. Yeah, I mean, a real good question to ask is whether it actually had some political. Um, Purpose or whether that was attached to it later. Inevitable that it's going to have a pol political uh, vibe to it. Inevitable. I mean, that's just going to happen. These okay. were political times. I, I got to say, and I'm, I don't generally effuse about a book like this. It really is special the way it, the way it looks. Now, why do I feel this way? I know you kind of feel the same way too, but do you have any handle on why? Well, you know, Yes, I, I do. It, you know, one of these things where you, where you write a book and or if you get into any sort of project of this magnitude, it's never really a reality until you hold it in your hands. And I've learned that quickly. And uh, I was a little overwhelmed when I first when I when it first arrived at my home. I'm like, whoa. First off, I'm like, what did I get myself into? Then secondly, <laughs> I'm looking at it. and I'm like, this is really nice. I mean, the presentation, uh, you know, the press, I can't say enough about Red Lightning uh, books have been very helpful and attentive to my needs and my wants, and I'll, and I'll relate that to the design of the book. Uh, I made I made it very clear be, before I signed any contract or went into this that this book is not to be a tie dye, uh, LSD, drippy, groovy lettered uh, book. This is meant to be a tribute to the youth culture of uh, Woodstock, Woodstock Nation, first and foremost, and it's meant to be a clear, concise, clean, easy to read, uh, in a chronological way, uh, book, and that one could read it and be immersed to the best you could possibly in a, in a book without video or anything else. You know, you don't need an imagination when you read Pilgrims of Woodstock. You're in it. So a lot of Woodstock books focus on the artists and when you focus on the artists you don't really get a sense of the fan experience which is what i think is the interesting part of woodstock the fan experience when you think of woodstock 
You automatically think, oh, man, what was it like? That's the number one question. And your book kind of answers that question, what was it like? Because it's about the fan experience. I've been told over and over. The- okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Real performers of Woodstock was the audience. And I've been told that more than five times, and it comes up a lot. And when you think about that, it is very true. When you when you study Woodstock and how 400,000 people acted and related to each other over those four days, it's truly uh, a tremendous thing. You know, on paper, Woodstock should have should have never really happened the the way it did and the way it went off. Um, the weather was a problem. You know, when speaking, you're just talking about the weather. I mean, it was hot. It was rainy. It was humid. Um, of course, uh, the stage, uh, was an issue. This, some say the stage was sliding because of mud. Uh, there was a turntable on the stage that was meant to have bands go on and off, but which, which failed. The roof structure failed. Um, food was a problem. Water was a problem. And then of course, Nixon era politics, any mass gathering of that size is an anti, you know, governmental thing. So when you have all these- is it- Back then it was. I mean, I Nixon was known to not like uh, huge uh, gatherings of that He nature. might not have liked it, but they might not have had any... I don't know if anything about it was an anti-Nixon rally. Well, I'm, you, you, could, pro- you You talk to a bunch of people, so you know better than I do. Well, it's not that I know better than I do, but I suspect that uh, the, the, the government was not happy with 400,000 people um, coming together in one spot. I'll just leave it at that. Not a lot of, there weren't a lot of protests. You didn't hear it, did you? A lot of, there were no down with Nixon signs, right? Well, I think there were many protests. I mean, thereafter, especially. um, Thereafter, but I'm talking about at Woodstock. Just just that October, there was a uh, a protest on Boston Common. But at Woodstock. But at Woodstock, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Was it, I think that's key. There I were, think it's a key thing to figure out. Was it that when you're trying to figure out what did it mean, mm-hmm. which is important to do, it's important to figure out how much of the the political statement part was painted on after the event by nostalgia. I, I don't think I don't think Woodstock was a political protest at okay. all. Yeah, I mean that's my opinion of Woodstock. Were there elements of it? Yes, there were, but not as dominant as you would have at a political proper political right, demonstration. None of the stage announcements were down with the man, right? No, and not distinctly, but I can tell you this. I mean, the, 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 the fusion of rock festival and protest came together soon after. I mean, these large demonstrations would have major pop stars like Joan Baez, like Peter, Paul, and Mary. Good point. Yeah, so you, you would have elements of this. And towards the end, I mean, I have documentation from organizers that say that they were getting frustrated at big festivals because they were turning into rock and roll events. People were going to demonstrations just to hear music. So eventually it turned in, into that and they became one. And, you know, the song Ohio, think about it. I mean, this is a protest song that did very well, you know? Right. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's spotted, but it, it, ha- it If occurred. you'd gone, where would you have sat, if you could sit anywhere? I would never have wanted to go to Woodstock. 
And I get asked that question well, a lot. You wouldn't, having done the book, you wouldn't want to go back and see uh, what's real and what ain't. No, I would not. Back have in wanted, time, you say no. I don't want to go. No, I would not have wanted to go. The Vietnam War was looming. I would have ended up in Vietnam or something like that. I mean, listen. After you learn about this stuff in great detail, these were really tumultuous and dark times. I I have enough of that now. You know, we have enough of that now. I I think the music is something to celebrate. Uh, I'm a fan of rock and roll music. I love rock and roll music, and I love a lot of the bands that performed at Woodstock. But I think that the um, there was a lot of weight on the shoulders of many people there uh, that were going through uh, some uh, difficult uh, moments, definitely. Okay, let's take a look inside the book at some of the pictures. Now, sure. I know this is radio, but I'm a good describer. Do it. A lot of the photos... Mm. are of people coming in which is it's, it's in the beginning yeah not so much you, you say you do it chronologically friday it begins well it begins two weeks before and then we begin with friday people um, streaming in looking kinda. wednesday wednesday i'm sorry there's a lot of it's it's first of all it's nice to see the times because people of a certain age like myself are nostalgic yes for those times yes you see the the kind of t-shirts that people were wearing exactly. the, the clothing yep and which is a question I ask. Attendees. Nobody's fat, by the way. Well, yeah, my wife points that out. A Everybody's lot. super thin. I know, I know. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. We can figure that one out uh, as to why. You know, health experts can figure that so, one out easily. But they didn't. They didn't. Why are you saying cocaine? I don't know. No, I mean, I just think have, people. They didn't, they didn't have cocaine you know, then. Uh, you know, cocaine was not a thing then. You know, a, cu a cup of a cup of coffee was probably the size of a teacup back then. We're drinking vats of uh, soda now, you know. But uh, yeah. you know, there are many different reasons why. But to your point, people coming in were generally happy, and I asked those questions. You know, in the design of the book, as I told you before, I looked at each each photo that was going to be in the book, and I pulled five questions from each photo, and those that. Base, that basically created the foundation of my questions for each attendee. And by doing that, I was able to pull themes that that basically rose naturally. And um, uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's really my point with that is that, that was, and that also helped with captions, you know, captions for the photos. Because the problem here was how do I create a book that's going to flow uh, with some continuity uh, where the photos are not necessarily of the people I'm interviewing? But it is a mutually shared experience. So one guy, when I asked questions, this guy Glenn, I said, so what were people wearing? He goes, well, hey, man. He goes, I remember these you know, guys would be wearing these groovy bell bottoms with stripes on them all the time. He goes, I owned a hip huggers with the bell. And then sure enough, there's some photos. So that was a perfect caption for that photo. It gave a voice. A lot to of Bell jeans and a lot of wide belts. Peasant shirts. And I'm not seeing them, but they may be in here as yeah. belts with a double ring belt loop. I yeah, don't, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You yeah. don't see brass, those brass, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And in the beginning, the folks are fairly fresh looking. They have not been beat down by the heat yet. And happy, feeling they, electricity. That's right. They're all optimistic looking. Very optimistic, yeah. Then as you get in, it gets a little more struggly. The, the the terrain starts to get beaten down. Uh, it's getting much more crowded, and their faces are not as happy. They look a little bit more uncomfortable. And I'd like to say what makes this book special as well is that there's a collection of photos in, in here of Woodstock at night. I, I've studied other collections of photographs from other uh, major photographers at the at the event: Elliot Landy, Henry Diltz, Barry Woolman, and Jim Marshall. And I have never seen a collection this uh, that that offered uh, 
photos of Woodstock at night, which was a different thing. It was a different scene at night. There were no lights there. Um, so the, the photos are just beautiful uh, looking, at, uh, looking at Woodstock at night. There's a photo of Mike Lang who got around on a, a motorcycle. He doesn't look very happy to have his photo taken in that, if you can see. He's getting I, ready to light a cigarette. You think that? I don't know. I think he kind of likes the media spotlight. That, in that photo, it looked, he didn't look too happy. I, yeah, I, he okay. Might. He might. But he looks super young. We'll agree on that. Very young, yeah. And he looks, I mean, to be uh, putting on something of this scope, how old do you suppose he is here, 25? Maybe he'll leave, leave a little bit younger. Yeah, I would say probably around 24. So is he really a go-getter to be able to strap that whole thing together? I think so, but he had help. I mean, he had two financiers. Woodstock Ventures was based off of four individuals, two financiers, uh, Joel Rosenman, John Roberts, and, of course, Artie Kornfeld and then Michael Lang. Did they lose all kinds of money? Well, the money that was lost at Woodstock was because of the movie deal and the soundtrack deal. And Rob Roberts, who was the primary financier, was trying to recoup that money, so he sold the right. They sold the rights away, which was a big mistake because Woods, the Woodstock soundtrack and documentary has made a ton of money so for Warner Brothers. So you mean the money lost was an opportunity cost? They they lost an opportunity because they sold the the rights. They lost an opportunity because they sold the rights. Yeah, and that was later felt. You know, as time went on, did the they make any money? Well. Just you know, ticket sales versus costs. I think very little. I've heard uh, 100, 150,000 tickets were sold beforehand because Woodstock was being promoted in the spring of 69. So um, there were ticket sales, but of course we know the, the gates uh, came down and, and that didn't happen. A lot of guys they, not wearing shirts, a lot of shirtless because it was so hot, right? I imagine, you know, nudity was something that I asked uh, uh, attendees about. You know, what was the nudity about? Because in the film, we see more nudity in the film than I've seen in other collections. And most people say there wasn't too much nudity in the in the field proper, but more around the pond. There was a pond called Filipini Pond where people went to cool off, clean themselves. Uh, I mean, think about it. It was rainy. It was hot. I mean, having clothes on must have been a real drag, you know. Did you ask them about the drug use and whether there were the you know the view many years out of it being a drug fest were true or not sure um well you know there were drugs of choice back then lsd being one of them marijuana being fairly prominent i mean i've heard con there were constant joints and pipes being passed around those who were sitting up front or near the stage said it was just a constant flow you were constantly being passed a joint or a pipe uh lsd there were known known uh, uh types of acid at um at woodstock which is most famous in chipmunks you know the the brown acid which is uh, uh stay away from the brown acid mm -hmm. but there are other types of acid or lsd floating around and in the book you'll see uh, a trip tent uh set up by the hog farm and uh that was uh, the wavy gravy crew the hugh romney at the time he wasn't quite he wasn't wavy gravy yet but hugh romney and tom law uh one of the hog farm uh, members writes the forward for the book because I felt as though the hog farm were the best. Uh, someone from the hog farm would be best to write a forward about a book about the attendees because they were the ones that were the kind of the curators of the crowd. Can you to explain help the what the, the hog farm was? Yeah, they were well. Communes in the 1960s were quite common, and um, the hog farm in particular were from uh, New Mexico, uh, the Yemez uh, Mountains in New Mexico, and they would show up at festivals and help with food distribution and help those who were struggling with uh, with um, with bad trips or drug overdoses. 
It, was it primarily a white event? It looks like it in the pictures. I mean, it's a good question. You know, I was in Martha's Vineyard recently for a book tour that I'm on. I'm on a book tour throughout New England uh, through uh, December. And, um, uh, you know, I've had pretty good turnout. Uh, just the other day in Hancock, New Hampshire, I had 56 people show up for this book tour uh, at this event, and 16 of them were Woodstock attendees. But to, wow. to my point... Uh, someone asked, you know, what was the makeup? What was the diversity makeup, the cultural diversity makeup? And, you know, I think Belak had an eye for that because he was in New York, he was a New York guy, so he 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 aimed his lens at different types of people, and you'll see that in there. But I think you're right; it was primarily a, a white. It's event. interesting. You, you were very careful to be diverse in the choice of who you included in the book. Very much. Inter but it wasn't a very diverse event. Your coverage of the, is way more diverse than the actual thing. Well, yes, that is true, but that helps with the uh, the analysis of the event. You know, if I and I did interview a black, a black individual, and he said, I asked him what was it like being a black person at a primarily a white event, and you know, he's he, everybody I talked to said there was no tension, there was no animosity. Everybody got along. I mean, everybody said this. Not one person said they saw a fight. Uh, that there was any sort of scuffle or anything like that. and You know, it would be awesome. Mm -hmm. I, I interrupted you, sorry. No, it's okay. If, through some magic, there was an interview of person A at the time asking the same questions you asked 50 years later and see if they matched up or if their interview was what, their remembrance of it was wildly different sure. many years after. You know how time is kind yeah. to, when you go on a trip, you don't remember the bad parts. You remember the good parts. That's true. That's right. And Woodstock, in many ways, is like that. The 60s, in particular, are often glorified and popularized, and Woodstock is as well. And, you know, that's my take on Woodstock, is that it was a difficult festival. It was a harsh environment. But yet, people got along, and they united in a, in a way where uh, it's now uh, this Impossible. kind of like— Yeah, it's incredible, yeah. They had kids there. There were children there, and that was another question I asked you. Did you see children? Because in my in the photo collection, uh, in Bellac's collection, there were children. You know, we're talking about the kids. I just got the okay. word I have to break. No worries. And we want to make sure that we tell people where they can go and see you speak. Okay. WBZ. Okay. JJ. Bradley J. JJ talking J. J talking with Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. Hey, soldier. Do you know who's in command here? Yeah. We gotta talk. Well, when can we talk? Over there is a very capable radio. 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 Get me someone on the other end of that radio. It's Bradley J, you know. Bradley J. J talking. You hear him talking on your radio. I can hear you. WBZ News Radio 1030. We're with John Kane, who has put together this beautiful, I guess you call it a coffee table book. You can call it a coffee. Not only book, photos, sure. though. They're, they're new photos, and they're a new type of photo. Yeah. How do you describe new type? There's something about this, the photos that are different. Belak was his name. They feel different, even though there are other audience photos. How are these different? I can feel it. Can't explain it. Can you? How the photos are different? Well, well first off, you've never seen them before, so that is a difference. Yeah, but secondly... There are uh, pictures in there that have never been seen of Woodstock. Aside from the attendees, there's photos of a petting zoo. Uh, 
um, you know that yeah. there have been myth, okay. there have been many myths about Woodstock that no one could ever that never had been seen and but often talked about. One is the petting zoo. Some of the structures you see in the book were built by the hog farm, which is like a rock swing and a, and a jungle gym for uh, young people. And we're going to talk about kids at Woodstock. There were children at Woodstock, yes. but mostly around the hog farm area. And the hog farm was set up two weeks before uh, the festival even occurred. So, and often communes would 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 travel with their children, and they would that was their lifestyle. Communes. Jeez, oh, I hadn't man. even thought about that. Was a thing. It was, and people, and when I, in the book, I ask, you know, what in particular, what type of clothing they would say? Well, you would know who was from the West Coast or who was from a commune because they just looked different, they acted different. And the buses, of course, when they rolled in, they were it was you know like a caravan of gypsies, you know. Now you you do give talks on this book. Where can we see you? Yep, I've been giving talks uh, since uh, early June, and um, let's see. Well, I'll I will be up at Bethel uh, celebrating the Woodstock uh, anniversary. Uh, uh, you can find my book tour uh, dates at www.pilgrimsofwoodstock.com. And I'll be in Barrington, New Hampshire on the 8th. Um, I'll where, be, do you, where do you speak in Barrington? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, the Barrington uh, Library uh, in New Hampshire, Barrington, New Hampshire on the 8th. And then August 11th, the Rough Draft Bar and Books in Kingston, New York for a si- book signing event there. The Golden Notebook Bookstore in Woodstock, New York on the 12th, and then Norfolk, Connecticut on the 14th at the Public Library there, and then at Bethel Woods, uh, I'll be part of the Author's Den uh, the 16th through the 18th. So the closest one to here is Barrington. Barrington's near Rochester. Yeah. Post-Woodstock anniversary, I'll be back in the area, and I'll be in Exeter, New Hampshire, and Seabrook, New Hampshire, and Arlington, Mass, and, and local Arlington, uh, Mass. Yep. Okay. Uh, Arlington, Mass, August 20th. Where's that? In Arlington. The Regent Theater. I'll be selling oh, great. and signing. Well, that's there. a big deal. Yeah. It'll be fun. Wow. There's a Woodstock event there, so I'll be in the lobby. Uh, so you have to do a lot of driving around, big time, right? Yeah. My car has taken a, a, taken a toll, but it's worth it. You know. A pretty long and boring ride out to Bethel, New York. Five hours. Five yeah. hours? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. But I'll I'll be there through through the ninth the tenth. There's a Hanley panel Hanley Sound panel that I'm moderating, and um, so I'll have a head start. I'll be. So you're the world's foremost expert on Bill Hanley. Well, I suppose, but I don't know what that means actually. But I I guess if someone means if you're gonna talk about Bill, they need you. (laughs) I'll take it. You know, Bill's a great guy, and it's an interesting story. His story is very very interesting and adventurous, and the book. Is incredible. It's a very encyclopedic, comprehensive book. Well, now you've done this. This is done. After your promo tour, you have the Henley book. But in, into the future, what do you self? What do you see yourself doing and being? That's a really good question. You got no idea. Well, you know, people a have writer. Asked, people have asked that question. I, you know, I was I was emailed yesterday and asked if I would write an op-ed for the Washington Post on the uh, fallout of Woodstock '50, and of course, I said yes. Uh, so maybe there's just this new there's a new turn of events for me with writing and but I want to write stories that are meaningful uh, and things that interest me. I don't want to write books for the sake of writing books. I want to write them for as if I were the reader. If, if you could write another a book, you could choose anything. What would it be? On? Well, if I had more time, I would write a book called Making Woodstock. You know, the entire comprehensive take every book that's ever been written on Woodstock and put it into one giant reference book i mean all the even from the first germ and the the organizers heads to all, and all their 
I struggled to get it together. Down to the type of nails they were using to bang in the plywood stage. Well, that'd have to be a series, probably. I don't know. I think it's worthy, but I'm not going to be around for the 75th or the 100th. So When I does the done. Bill Hanley book come out? February. February. And yep. what is the format of that book? It's it's hardcover, and uh, it's with the University Press of Mississippi. This is The Pilgrims is with University Press of Indiana, and um, that book is 600 pages long and uh, has over 1,700 notes, over 175 interviews, and I worked on it for eight years. And Who, the, who's going to want to read this? I mean, who, who's it for? Thank you for asking that. Uh, students of the craft of audio engineering, audiophiles, music uh, enthusiasts, um, pop culture music enthusiasts, Woodstock enthusiasts. Um, it is meant, to, uh, it's not a trade book, but it is meant uh, for a varied and wide audience. You love music. Are you? Do you play any music, any instruments? Yeah, I started playing bass, uh, my first instrument, and then I moved on to drums. And I've, I've been Somehow in a couple I of knew bands. you'd be a drummer. Yeah. I had kind of an epiphany yesterday. Yeah. I, I never have even considered playing the drums. I realized... I want to play the drums. I, w I, I want that tactile thing. Yeah. I want the, to play it's the drums and primitive. sweat. Yeah. So what I have to do is get the drum kits, no problem. I have to get a space yeah. down here. That's a thing. Yeah. So by anyone out there, Bradley J is looking for a space that's on the T. A place where I can here. pound on the drums <laughs> all day and all night long. Just get a, a, an electronic set. You can put the headphones no, on. No, God, no. <laughs> no, I... Uh, you're going back to Newmarket now. Yes. I lived there for a little while. Yep. What's Newmarket, New Hampshire like? Small town. Uh, Super small people. Yeah. Well, not small people. But there's there's average Super size small, people there. Comma people. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a mill. It's a mill town. Uh, there's a river running through uh, Newmarket. Uh, a lot of academics. A lot of writers. Uh, and um, it's about that, what five miles from UNH. About five miles from UNH. Yeah. You can hitchhike, which I did m many many times. Yeah, Stone Church still there. Stone Church is still there. I wish I could go more, but uh, Ramble and Jack Elliott's playing there tomorrow night. I might Stone hit Church is a church. It was it was a former like community uh, community building community uh, a church originally, but then it had different uh, versions. Good place but, to see a band. Good place to have a beer, a burger, see a band. Yeah, it's lots of fun. All right, thanks very much. You got it. It's WBZ and it's Friday. I yes, doing the research for this song. I mean, this uh, book, this interview with Jack. A uh, John. Jack. <laughs> Call me Jack. Jack Kane. I like I, it. I, Sound uh, like a detective. I. Uh, <laughs> I played Woodstock. I was playing uh, Soul Sacrifice, with Santana, the, the Woodstock version, and automatically somehow I was on YouTube. Automatically, YouTube started playing other long songs. They played um, Freebird, some live version of Freebird, and I got in, started getting into long songs. I like long songs a lot. They take you take you on a journey that are three minutes, three minutes of truth can't take you. And throughout the night, I'm going to be asking you when you call, what's your favorite long, long song? Take care, brother. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.